Let's pray together. Father, because of your grace to, to us, we long for the day when the mountains will be removed into the heart of the sea. And the waters will roar and foam. And the heavens and the earth will be rolled up like a scroll. And like a garment, you will change them when you make all things new. And Lord, in, until that day, we pray that your word would so speak to us that we would resonate with the words of Micah. That we would be able to say to the adversary, rejoice not over me, my enemy. When I fall, I shall rise. When I sit in darkness, the Lord will be a light to me. And Father, we would bear your indignation at our sin because Christ has pled our case and he has redeemed us and we are confident that there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. So Lord, we long for the day and until that day, we pray that you would cause Psalm 144 and all of your word to take root in our hearts Cause us to hope in you, we pray. Be our steadfast love. Be our refuge, our strength, our secure height. We pray all this in Christ's name. Amen. <clears throat> Just a few weeks ago, my son Jake and I were in Germany together, and we got to go to this, to this city called Koblenz. We were there with uh, his school group, and the city of Koblenz sits where these two rivers come together. I don't remember the name of the rivers. But right where the rivers come together, there, there's this cliff face on both sides. So these two streams come in, and right there in the corner of the streams, there's this cliff face. And on the top of the cliff, I mean, centuries ago, the Romans built a fortress. And then all through the Middle Ages, down to the present day, uh, this fortress has been added to, and that place is an impregnable stronghold because you've got the cliffs and, and, the, and the river, and then behind the, the, the outcropping, the walls, on, on the other side is just this open field where, where those holding that fortress, uh, you know, the, 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 the army coming against them, they're just sitting ducks as they make their way through that field. It's, it's a, it is an awesome stronghold. And it was an awesome place to visit, too, because to get there, you have to ride a cable car. So we rode a cable car across the river up there to the Aaron Breitenstein Fortress uh, that sits on this river there in Koblenz. And um, we, we get up there, and I love tour guides. We, we, we had not arranged to have a tour guide, but there was a group that was taking a tour, and they had, this guy may be the best tour guide I've ever seen. Um, he, he, was, he, he had sort of this wild look in his eye, like he was so enthusiastic about his job, and, and he was dressed up like a character. I mean, he had, he had like pinstriped uh, trousers and a matching vest with a, a, a bow tie and a top hat and a cane. And he, he, you could tell this guy loved his job. And, and he started talking about this fortress, and I'm like, you guys go on, I'm going to follow this group around. <laughs> which I didn't wind up doing, but I tried to eavesdrop for as long as I could. And um, the reason I mention him 
is because my hope is to be a little bit of a wild-eyed tour guide this morning about this psalm that I am really excited about. This, this psalm is incredible. What's happening in this psalm is really exciting. So I want to feel a little bit like that tour guide. You know, he had this map of the fortress. It's this maze of, of walled buildings that are like pentagonal and rectangular and all these weird shapes. And then it's sort of a maze to get through there. And, and he's, he's like, don't tell anybody, but I smuggled out a map, you know, and he's showing his group how this thing all fits together. It was really, it was really fun. Um, as we approach Psalm 144, we have something that is, that is as exciting as the Aaron Breitenstein Fortress. And uh, it, it's almost like what we have here, it is like what we have here is a message from the living God. God inspired David who wrote this psalm. And then not only did he write this psalm, but he fixed this psalm in a very significant place in this book of psalms. And, and he causes things to happen in Psalm 144 that are, are really remarkable. So the first thing I want to do is sort of give you the lay of the land of Psalm 144. This is almost like the map of the fortress, if you will. So let me just draw your attention to the way that in verses 1 and 2, David is just talking about God. And he's talking about everything God is to him. And then in verse 3... He, he says, O oh Lord, and then he starts talking about man. And in verses 3 and 4, he just reflects on the brevity of human life. And then in verse 5, you should have, in my opinion, you should have O oh Lord at the beginning of the line again, because that's where it is. So he's starting each new unit with an address to God, O oh Lord. And, and in verses 5 through 8, what he does is he calls on God for salvation. He calls on God to go into action on his behalf. And then in verses 9 through 11, what you've got at the beginning of verse 9 is, O oh God. You can see the words, O oh God, in verse 9. They're at the beginning of the line in, in the Hebrew. So, you know, each, each section is starting with, O oh Lord, O oh Lord, and then, O oh God. And what he does in verses 9 through 11 is he pledges that he's going to sing God's praise. So let me just invite you to think about the flow of thought that we've seen so far, just in this brief overview. He starts out reflecting on God and, and what God is to him and, and, and everything that God can do. God can shield him. God can be his fortress. God is his steadfast love. And that seems to prompt him to recognize how insignificant he is. What is man, he says there in verse 3. And, and then his insignificance, in light of everything that God is, then prompts him to say, Lord, I need you. I need you to come. I need you to come and save me. And then it's like, once he gets through that section to verse 9, he promises, once you've saved me, I'm going to praise you. I will sing a new song. Oh, God. There in verses 9 through 11. And then in verses 12 through 15, at the end of the psalm, you can note also how uh, at the end of verse 7, end of verse 8, there's a very same words at the end of verse 11. So that, that same line that you have in verse 8 and in verse 11 closes those two sections. And then in the final section in verses 12 through 15, it, it's like he says, God, 
accomplishes, accomplish the purposes that you set out to achieve when you made the world in the beginning. And, and he just goes through all these ways that he's confident God is going to bless his people. And what's interesting about that is that what he says there about the way that, that he wants God's people to be blessed, it, it really corresponds to the way that God promised to bless his people when he made the covenant with them. So in Leviticus 26 and Deuteronomy 28, you can go read the way that God has promised to bless his people, and it's exactly what David prays for here in verses 12 through 15. So uh, with that with that sort of layout of, of the psalm, the sort of the, the overview before us, let, let me make an observation that this is something I got really excited about uh, as I was studying this psalm. Uh, this psalm, I've got this great chart that if you want to look at later, you know, this nice layout, but I'm not going to go through all this. This is, not, this is the kind of thing that when I'm talking to my wife about this, she's like, honey, don't spend too much time on this in the sermon. Nobody's going to be as excited about this as you are, but I think it's really cool. Um, psalm 144 almost quotes Psalm 18 eight times. And that's what I've got laid out in this chart. All the ways that essentially what David has done is he's picked up words and phrases from Psalm 18, and now he's reusing them in Psalm 144. And it's not just 144, it's also Psalm 33. He's quoted, this is why we started the call to worship from Psalm 33. He's quoted that Psalm three times. And then he's got individual references to Psalm 8, Psalm 39, Psalm 104, I think Psalm 1, Psalm 52, 92, 120. He's quoting all this previous material, prior material. Why is he doing this? Why would he pick up all this language from Psalm 18 and reuse it here? Incidentally, this is why Todd read Psalm 18 earlier. Maybe you remember the superscription of Psalm 18. It's a psalm of David which he sang to the Lord on the day when the Lord rescued him from the hand of all his enemies and from the hand of Saul. That's how Psalm 18 starts. So here's what I would suggest David is doing. David is saying, uh, this psalm that I, that I wrote, that I addressed to the Lord when God had saved me from all my enemies, I'm going to reprise it at the end of the Psalter. It's almost like a great music. The book of Psalms is almost like a great musical. Maybe you're, you've listened to My Fair Lady or Les Mis or Hamilton, and, and you've noticed the way that the songs at the beginning will be revisited. The, the, the melodies will be revisited later, and maybe they'll even sing some of the same lines. And it's like that's what David is doing. Why, why do they do that? Well, he wants us to think about Psalm 18. He wants us to think about the way that God saved Israel at Mount Sinai, which he applied to his own life in, in Psalm 18. And also, Psalm 18, the final words of Psalm 18 are these. Um, David prays at the end of that psalm. He says, Great salvation he brings to his king and shows steadfast love to his anointed, to David and his offspring forever. And that suggests, I think, that David is not just thinking about God saving him. He's thinking about God saving the future king from his line. So it's a, it's a Psalm 144 at the end of the Psalter that's looking back and forward. And then just briefly, look at what happens after 144. It's an explosion of praise from Psalms 145 to 150. 
So it's like you've got this final celebration of God and, and his work and this final call for salvation that's picking up on Psalm 18, pointing forward to the future king from David's line, and then that's going to issue in all this praise. So let's work through this psalm together. David begins, and this is going to, if you've been here and you've been walking through the psalms with us, this is going to sound familiar. It's supposed to sound familiar. David begins saying, blessed be the Lord. These words resonate all through the Bible. This is what Job said in the midst of his distress. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Blessed be the Lord. And then he says, my rock. This is another thing I think that brought to mind that Aaron Breitenstein fortress. I'm sure that those people that took refuge in that fortress through the centuries thought that they were, they were safe, they were impregnable. But, you know, if, if, as you walk around there, you see these places where the cannons blew holes in the structures. You see the places, the times, you can tell, you see the physical evidence that there were times when that fortress was attacked and taken. But not those who take refuge in the Lord. Blessed be the Lord, my rock. And then look at what he says in verse 2. My stronghold. And then, and then he says later in verse 2 there, in whom I take refuge. We, we the people of faith, we, we believe that we have taken refuge in the one who can never fail us. He will never be defeated. Thinking about David saying, blessed be the Lord my rock made me think of um, Dwayne the Rock Johnson. And, um, and, and it brought to mind this article that David French, who writes for National Review, maybe you read some of his stuff, he, he wrote this article, Why We Love and Need the Rock. And he's talking about why people like these movies, even though they're so impossible. And, and then he's describing this movie that I haven't seen, but uh, I read David French's description, then I went, went and watched the YouTube clip. Uh, he describes this scene in one of these movies where The Rock, he goes into action, and what's happening is there's this attack helicopter and this drone, and they're both honing in on this car, and they're trying to shoot the, you know, blow up the people in this car. And The Rock commandeer, commandeers an ambulance, and, and he drives this ambulance, and he crashes through a concrete barrier, and, and he goes over this bridge, and he collides with, I don't know if it was the helicopter, or the, but there's a big explosion. And then, of course, this is not the end of the rock, you know, because what he does is he crashes out the windshield of that uh, helicopter and he gets up and he takes up a machine gun and he's going to attack that helicopter, you know, with the machine gun. And, and, and people love this stuff, right? All the, I haven't seen the movie, but all these people pay to go see these movies because we love a hero. We love the idea that there's somebody that we can count on, the, the idea that there's somebody that's never going to fail, in this movie, uh, there's this female, this female character who sees this happening, and she says to him, did you bring the cavalry? And he responds, woman, I am the cavalry. <laughs> Blessed be the Lord. You know, you know, the reality is the rock could never be our savior, could he? Uh, I, was, I was doing a little bit of reading. He actually played football at the University of Miami. He wasn't a starter. He didn't make the NFL. The Rock is not almighty. That, that Dwayne, the Rock Johnson, is not almighty. Our Rock, 
There is nothing that could ever overcome him or stop him or defeat him. And then David says there in verse 1, after he says, Blessed be the Lord, my rock. He says, Who trains my hands for war and my fingers for battle. And as I was thinking about this, uh, I, what, what came to mind was um, how it could have been that God actually trained David for, for war and for battle. And when we think about David's life, it, you know, it's not as though God uh, did the way that Bobby Aldis, some of you know Bobby Aldis, um, he's a member here, he's now pastoring down the street. Recently, um, Bobby gave my son Jake a hitting lesson, and then in Jake's next baseball game, he hit a home run. Praise the Lord. I'm calling Bobby. I'm like, hey, man, you're a great teacher. Um, it's, the Lord didn't do that. The Lord didn't say, all right, David, here's the technique for using this sling. That's not literally what happened. So how did the Lord train David for battle? How did he, he train him for war? Uh, when we go back and reread the way that David went out against Goliath, David went out against Goliath, I think we have to say, ready to die. David went out against Goliath saying to him, you have defied the armies of the living God. And it doesn't look safe to me. It doesn't look like the odds are in my favor, favor but I am not going to stand for that. If it costs me my life, I'm going to oppose you. I'm going to walk out here and fight you because the name of God matters more to me than me continuing to live. So I think that's the sense in which God trained David for battle. God convinced David that there was something worth more than David's own life. And you go into battle like that, and, and David took down Goliath. So I think that's the sense in which in which David means he tr that God trained him for war and his fingers for battle. God convinced him that God's kingdom matters more than life. This is what, this is what convinces people to cross oceans today and learn multiple languages and invest years trying to, to reach unreached people. This is why people go out. This is why... This is why we do so much of what we do here, because we're convinced that knowing God, the steadfast love of the Lord, as Psalm 62 says, the steadfast love of the Lord is better than life. And then verse 2, I think, is a stunning statement. And, and the reason this is a stunning statement is because I can't think of another place. And I searched. I mean, I did the Bible work searches. I highlighted. I did search for this phrase, search for this forms. I did all the searches I could run. I don't think there's another place in the Bible where this is stated. And, and as I thought about that, I thought, this would make me a little nervous. <laughs> you know, if I, was, if I was the author writing something that nobody else had said, it would make me nervous because I'd be a little bit hesitant that, I don't want to say something wrong. I don't want to say something heretical, right? So, so for David to say this is both courageous and bold, and it's also creative. What he says here is, he is my steadfast love. Can you think of another place in the Bible where somebody says of God, he is my steadfast love? I think this is, this is a unique statement in all of the Bible. He is my steadfast love. You've got the word chesed, and you've got a first-person singular pro pronoun on the end of it. 
My steadfast love. And he's talking about God. This is so intensely personal. Anybody that says that a personal relationship with the living God is something new to the New Testament needs to read this statement. He is my steadfast love. David is talking this way because he has experienced intensely, personally, the love of the living God. What does he mean when he, say that, when he says this? He is my steadfast love. Well, among what, I mean, I don't know that we can come to the end of this, but among what this means, I think David is recognizing that God is the only source, the only origin of this kind of love. God is, God is the originator of this steadfast love. And God is an inexhaustible, we've seen this across the Psalms, Psalm 136, the steadfast love of the Lord endures forever. Over and over that refrain is, is articulated. God is an inexhaustible fountain of this steadfast love. So God has loved David this way, with this love that flows from his innermost heart, from, from the roots of the character of God comes loving kindness, loyal love, steadfast love, chesed, however you want to articulate this. This, this is flowing out of who God is. And by loving David this way, God taught him the meaning of this love. And what John says over in 1 John, we love because he first loved us. It's, it's, that's not the language that David uses, but that's what's going on here. He is my steadfast love. As David is loyal to others, as David loves others, this is flowing out of the way that he has been loved by God. He is my steadfast love. And then in the rest of this verse, David talks about how safe this makes him. Don't miss this connection. He is my steadfast love and my fortress. He's not a literal set of walls that are... We, Jake and I went to the castle in Heidelberg while we were over in, in Germany, and the, the, there's a, a certain tower over there, and you can see the way that they've, they, in, in you know, the Middle Ages or whenever this happened, they dynamited the tower so you can see the open walls. The walls are seven meters thick. That's, that's longer than from the free throw line to the basket. 21 feet, it's like a three-pointer, thick. That's how thick the walls were. And, and, and the only way to get in is to blow the thing up. He is my steadfast love and my fortress. Not seven meter thick walls, but a God who loves us with an everlasting love. And the everlasting love of God, when you, experiences, when you experience that, it makes you secure so that you feel like you are in an impregnable fortress. Because you are loved by the one who has planned the future, who controls the future, who plotted everything from the beginning, and you're convinced that he's working all this for your good. He is my steadfast love and my fortress, my stronghold, and my deliverer. He's plotted your safety. He's accomplished your deliverance. He's loved you 
with an unassailable, impregnable, never-ending, and when you think about it, never-starting love. This is what it means for God's love to be from before the foundation of the world. My deliverer, my shield. Now, the thing about a shield, the thing that's different between a fortress or a stronghold and a shield is that you actually have to wield the thing. You actually have to load this thing up on your arm and then use it. And, and I would urge you to do this. We, we need to, to take our consciousness of God and, and our experience of God's love and we need to deploy it as a shield, put it to work for us. When we get tempted, when we start thinking things we don't want to think, when we start going down these rabbit trails of, of, of sadness or of doubt or, or whatever the case may be, and, and maybe, maybe we're tempted to, to find some other refuge. Maybe you think, I'll go look at Facebook or I'll go read Twitter or I'll go look at something I shouldn't look at or I'll resort to eating. I you need to take up your shield in that moment. And you need to put the love of God to work for you as your fortress. My shield and he in whom I take refuge, who subdues peoples, peoples under me. David is saying that everything, everything about who he is, his whole identity is shaped and formed and informed by the love of God by the rock that is Yahweh. And, and he derives his existence and his life and his hope and his reign from God who subdues peoples under me. So he starts from God and he's reflecting on this God. And, and I think it makes sense that his next statement there in verse 3 would be, Oh Lord, what is man that you regard him? When, you, when we get, we have not yet begun to understand how significant, how massive, how wise God is. Our concept of God is not yet large enough, and it will not be large. We will, he's infinite. We will never come to the end of him. What are we, humans, that God would regard us? You know, the Bible is it's, it's really an amazing book in the way that it, it exalts humanity as the crown of creation, made in the image and likeness of God. And at the same time, it debases us before the living God because we're nothing before him. The nations are like a drop in the bucket. It's nothing before God. What is man that you regard him or the son of man that you think of him? And I know you're thinking of Psalm 8. It sounds just like Psalm 8. David means for you to do that. David is the maestro. David is the composer. And he's, and he's bringing these earlier thoughts together. And it's like he's saying, remember Psalm 18? Remember God's deliverance? Remember the promise to the future king for my line? Remember Adam, who was made Lord of creation? Hinting, I think, at a new Adam. What is man that you regard him or the son of man that you think of him? Man is like a breath. Uh, really, what you've got here is man at Adam is like a breath, Abel. The, word, the name Abel in Hebrew is, is the word for breath. So it's like he's saying Adam is like Abel. Uh, Abel died young. Adam died. And in the face of eternity, 
the longest life is over. Man is like a breath. His days are like a passing shadow. What this does, when David, when David considers the way that one so great as Yahweh would care for meager humans, what it does is increase the greatness of Yahweh, right? He doesn't need to do this, but he loves us. He doesn't need it for himself. This is what Isaiah is articulating in Isaiah 57, verse 15. Isaiah says, Thus says the one who is high and lifted up, who inhabits eternity, whose name is holy. I dwell in the high and holy place, and also with him who is of a contrite and lowly spirit, to revive the spirit of the lowly and to revive the heart of the contrite. That's amazing. It is amazing that the holy God would describe himself in this way. I dwell in the high and holy place and also with him who is of a contrite and lowly spirit to revive the spirit of the lowly. It's, it's like Psalm 34 verse 18. The Lord saves the brokenhearted. The, the Lord is near to the brokenhearted and saves the crushed in spirit. This high and holy God draws near to those who need him. So he starts with the magnificence of God in verses 1 and 2, the brevity and the insignificance of man in verses 3 and 4. And then it's like he says, all right, here's some Psalm 18 for you. You remember in Psalm 18, it was like a description of Exodus 19, where the mountain trembled and, and, and the, the heavens went dark and the fire came down on the mountaintop. And there was an earthquake and there were blasts of thunder and there were flashes of lightning as God entered into covenant with, with Israel at Mount Sinai. And David now says, using the same language that we saw in Psalm 18 when Todd read this a moment ago, bow your heavens, O Lord, and come down. Think about that phrase. Bow your heavens, O Lord. It's like David is saying, the time-space universe is not big enough for you, Lord. So what you're going to have to do is you're going to have to take the dimensions and you're going to have to push them out of the way to get yourself in. You're going to have to bend the heavens to get it out of the way to make space for you. Bow your heavens, O Lord, and come down. And then because God is like as Hebrew says, like a consuming fire. When he touches down on the mountains, they blaze. Touch the mountains so that they smoke. This is a quotation, near quotation, of Psalm 104, verse 32, which I think itself is also reflecting on Mount Sinai, the way that God comes down on the mountaintop in flaming fire and thick darkness and, and fumes of smoke. And, and in Deuteronomy, Moses says over and over that it was out of the midst of the fire that, God, that Israel heard God speaking. Bow your heavens, O Lord, and come down. Touch the mountains so that they smoke. Flash forth the lightning and scatter them. Send out your arrows and rout them. The enemies of God, the enemies of God's people, they stand no chance against him. There is no way that anyone can stand against the living God. Verse 7, stretch out your hand from on high. 
rescue me and deliver me from the many waters. It's, I think David is using flood imagery here. I think he's saying, in essence, something like, do for me what you did for Noah. You kept Noah alive through this, this deluge that killed everybody else on the planet. Deliver me from the many waters. This is also, I mean, this is what Psalm 18 says. Uh, you, he took me, he drew me out of the many waters. And I think there are connections there with Moses also. She named him Moses because she said, I drew him out of the waters. And, and David is saying, this is the way I need you to rescue me. Deliver me from the many waters. But it's not literally water. Look at what he goes on to say at the end of verse 7. From the hand of foreigners. These are enemies who are attacking God and attacking God's people. And then he says in verse 8, whose mouths speak lies and whose right hand is a right hand of falsehood. So these are probably foreigners who have made peace treaties with Israel and they've shaken on it, but their right hands with which they shook to make the deal, to make the pledge, that's a right hand of falsehood. And their mouths with which they spoke the terms of the... They, they speak lies. And David is saying, I can't trust people, God. So I need you to save me. I can't trust people, so I need you to save me. And he's calling out to the one who is able to save, the one who cannot fail to save. I don't know what is on your mind and heart this morning. I don't know what you're going through. I don't know what you're dealing with. But I hope that you're hearing that there is a God whose character is such that, that the, probably the, the word that's used most often to describe him in the Old Testament is this word chesed, steadfast love, loving kindness. And I hope you're hearing that, that experiencing that love will be like entering into a stronghold. And and thinking on that love will be like taking up a shield. And then I hope you're also seeing David's example of calling on this God. Verses 5 through 8 sit right in the middle of this psalm. And notice what David is doing. He's taken what God has done in the past. Mount Sinai, Psalm 18. And, and my wife used this, this great phrase as we were... As we were thinking about this text together, she said he is, he's believing and trusting in God's word and promises and then praying it in. This is what we need to do with God's character and God's word. We need to pray it into our hearts. We need to pray it into our souls. It needs to become part of who we are. This is what David is doing. He's, he's knowing God. And then he responds in the way that people that know God respond. Look at what he says there in, in verse 9. I will sing a new song to you, O God. That's what he's doing, really, in Psalm 144. He's singing a new song that's using bits and pieces from old songs, but there's a new piece in there, isn't it? Verse 2, he is my steadfast love. I think that's altogether new. I will sing a new song to you, O God. Upon a ten-stringed harp I will play to you. My son Jed this week asked me, why does he say 10-stringed harp? I think he's just describing the instrument. Uh, there, there's some indications in the Old Testament that David actually invented new musical instruments. I mean, there were musical instruments in existence, but he invented some new ones. And, and as I was thinking about Jed's question, I thought about um, 
what I heard this guy Robert Greenberg say about the piano. When they invented the piano, it was, it was technically called a pianoforte. And the reason they called it a pianoforte is because it was a soft loud. It, could, it, it had dynamics. You could play it soft and you could play it loud. So they called it a, a, a soft loud, piano, soft, forte, loud. And, and they're just describing the instrument. Same thing with 10-stringed harp. On a 10-string harp, I will play to you. And then in verse 10, he sounds like Psalm 18, verse 50. Remember that? Great salvation he brings to his king, uh, to David and his offspring. Look at verse 10. Who gives victory to kings, who rescues David, his servant, from the cruel sword. Rescue me and deliver me from the hand of foreigners. And here, here's this line again. Whose mouths speak lies and whose right hand is a, is a right hand of falsehood. It's like David is saying... There's not going to be some international peace treaty that's going to bring about the kingdom of God. There's not going to be some League of Nations, some United Nations, some, some uh, European Union that's going to achieve peace on earth. You're going to have to do it, Lord. Because these nations, their right hands are right hands of falsehood. Their mouths speak lies. That's what people do. You're going to have to do it, Lord. And then he describes the kingdom. And what's, what's so interesting about... about um, politicians past and present is that when they start describing what they're going to bring about it you, you go read Karl Marx's communist manifesto when he starts talking about what he's going to bring about through communism and socialism he's basically saying he's going to bring about the millennium but he, but the, you know the communists are going to do it they can't come up with something better than what the bible describes they can't come up with a better description of the kingdom than what the Bible promises. And David is saying, Lord, when you save, this is what life is going to be like. This is what we're praying for. So he promises the new song, the new, the, the, the new praise, and then he starts talking about what he's hoping for. And before, I, before we work through verses 12 through 15... Let me just say that the foundation of this kind of hope is the fact that God is good and God made the world and God intended life to flourish in all its forms. The reason there's death and, and cursing and judgment in the world is because man sinned, we sinned, we brought death and judgment and curse into the world. But God's goodness goes further back than our sin. And God's goodness will prevail in the end. And because God is good, God is going to overcome evil. His purposes will be accomplished. Look at what David says here. He's first going to talk about sons and daughters. And the imagery that he uses to talk about sons and daughters is fascinating. May our sons in their youth be like plants, full grown. This is a way of saying May they be like trees, right? Plants, full grown. And, and this kind of imagery is, is it's common in the Psalms. Um, Psalm, let me get my chart here. Um, Psalm 52, verse 8, the psalmist says, I am like a luxuriant olive tree in the house of God. So he's using the tree imagery, which is Garden of Eden type imagery, and temple imagery. Um, Psalm uh, 92, verses 12 and 13. The righteous will sprout like a palm tree, like a cedar of Lebanon. Uh, in, uh, wood used in the building of the temple. 
he will grow. Plantings in the house of Yahweh, in the courts of our God, they will sprout. Again, tree and temple imagery. Psalm 128, verse 3, your wife like a vine bearing fruit in the rooms of your house, your sons like olive shoots, like shoots of olive trees around your table. Again, this tree imagery. May our sons in their youth be like plants full. May they be Psalm 1 people. May they be like a tree bearing fruit in season. And then look at what he goes on to say. Our daughters like corner pillars cut for the structure. And here I think every English translation misses it. It's like a whiff. Because the word here that's translated palace also means temple. I don't know why they don't translate it temple here. They ought to. I think what he's saying is the sons are going to be like trees. The daughters are going to be like the temple, like the, uh, like the adornment of the temple, because they're going to enjoy the presence of God. That's what he's talking about. May our children thrive in the presence of God. That's what he's saying. May they have life in God's presence. And then he moves into the produce of the land. May our granaries be full, providing all kinds of produce. And then to the the flocks of sheep and the herds of cattle. May our sheep bring forth thousands and ten thousands in our fields. So that the sheep are being fruitful and multiplying. Verse 14, may our cattle be heavy with young, suffering no mishap or failure in bearing. May there be no cry of distress in our streets. Uh, every, every time I read this this week and thought about it, I thought about that line near the end of the Hamilton musical after Burr has killed Hamilton, and he says the words, I hear wailing in the streets. There's, no, there's, there's going to be no wailing in the streets when Jesus reigns. Verse 15, blessed are the people to whom such blessings fall. Uh, that, you, you, got, you got blessed at the beginning and the end, but you got different words for Blessed. At the beginning, blessed be the Lord my rock, that's Baruch. It's a word that has to do with with the knees, bowing the knee, bowing the knee to to the Lord and blessing him. This word here is ashray. It's a word that has to do with the happiness that comes from God's blessing. Happy are the people for whom it is like this. Happy are the people or blessed are the people whose God is Yahweh. If you worship any other God but Yahweh, you are not going to be happy. But if you will turn from those idols, if you'll turn from all those things that that will never satisfy you, whether it's a person that you're hoping is going to make you whole or a job that you're hoping to get to make you rich or some pleasure, whatever it is, whatever idol you're looking to is not going to achieve these blessings. In fact, your idolatry is only going to bring about the wrath of the living God. But because of his goodness, this God, this God has sent his son, the son of David, the king from David's line, who bore our punishment in his body when he died on the tree, canceling our debts, paying for our sins, and then he rose from the dead to overcome death to guarantee the resurrection of the dead. To make it so that everybody that turns from idolatry to worship the living God by faith in Christ can hope in these blessings, can know the God who is our steadfast love and our fortress. This is better than this is better than some 
fortress that's an artifact. It's better than some rock that's fallen from heaven. It's better than listening to a fabulous tour guide. The Lord is the fountain of all being and love. And like David in Psalm 144, Jesus knew his Father as his love and his protector. Do you remember what Jesus prayed in John 17? Jesus says, I want my love and the love with which you have loved me to be in them. This is what Jesus prays for his people, that God would be our steadfast love, our protection. Jesus said, I have protected them while they were in the world. Now I'm coming to you. You protect them. And I think what we see here in Psalm 144 is David finding his identity in God's love. I don't know if this is appropriate grammar. I think this is right. As should we find our identity. Did I get that right? As should we. We should find our identity in God's love. This is who we want to be. We want to be people who are marked and known by the love of God. Because one day... You know, Mount Sinai, there's the earthquake. Psalm 18 describes the earthquake. And the author of Hebrews is saying, yet once once more, he's going to shake heaven and earth. And then only what God makes is going to remain in the new heavens and new earth. And we want to be those who have taken refuge in him. Those who don't shrink back, but who are bold. Because our hands have been trained for war by the love of God. Let's pray. Father, who are we to hear such a word from you, to have you reveal yourself to us in this way? We don't deserve this. We didn't earn this. You, in your good pleasure, in your everlasting love, you chose to reveal yourself to us in this way. And Lord, that gives us great confidence that you intend to not just begin our knowing you, our experiencing you, but you intend to complete it. And Lord, we place our hope and our faith and our trust in you, the one who has begun the work, the one who will carry it to completion, the one who will wipe away every tear, the one who will make all things new. And Lord, we pray that you would convince us every moment of every day and, and train us for our warfare. Cause us to take up the shield of faith and the sword of the Spirit and cause us to be like David, ready to throw away our lives because your steadfast love is better than life. We ask it in Christ's name. Amen.